Hi, this is Dan Paul Thiel with the CSIS Strategic Technologies Podcast. We're joined today by Martin Labicki and Scott Harold, both of the RAND Corporation, who just finished up a roundtable discussion here at CSIS. Martin and Scott are here talking about their recent trip to China, where they met with Chinese officials to discuss relations between the U.S. and China on cyber issues. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. You're welcome. It's our pleasure. So this is Will Carter with the CSIS team. Um, one question that was interesting that you guys uh, brought up is, you know, the Chinese have this doctrine of it's either war or it's not war. So instead of incremental escalation of responses, um, the Chinese view it as the, there's no legitimate response to a cyber incident unless you're in a state of war. Um, and then you also talked a little bit about the mutual uh, recognition of threats to critical infrastructure and the potential for serious attacks on critical infrastructure. Is that the red line for the Chinese, or did you guys get a sense of things that they might identify as potential red lines? We didn't get a really strong sense that they had a well-thought-through set of red lines. Um, I think whatever red line is, it's going to be higher than what the United States suffered during the Sony incident, probably higher than what Saudi, Arab uh, Saudi Arabia suffered during the Ramco incidents. I think it would have to have a significant effect on the country and a significant effect on the day-to-day -day life of the Chinese people. It would also be viewed, they would act, viewed it in terms of the hostility that would be implied by the incident and probably in terms of, they would evaluate it in terms of the overall relationship with the United States or whoever they thought the attacker was. Just to add to that, Will, um, <clears throat> you know, you discussed the uh, Chinese views of what's the legitimate response to cyber, a cyber intrusion. Um, the Chinese actually are very comfortable with the notion of gray zones, as we're seeing in the East and South China Sea, where they've used um, their commercial fishing fleet and their maritime law enforcement vessels to try to engage in a form of coercion or, or encouragement, if you're being charitable, uh, to their neighbors. Uh, but the Chinese talk about uh, escalation as something that can be very clearly managed. They don't generally tend to believe that conflict occurs because countries slip into war. Uh, and this could be a, a consequence of, uh, of a number of factors stemming from traditional culture to political to current political culture uh, to simply a culture of bureaucratic desire not to uh, tell bad news to the top. Um, but also, the Chinese tend to react to any uh, claimed cyber intrusion uh, that's picked up outside of China with the demand that that be met through diplomacy, through um, uh, means other than a, either a, a cyber or kinetic response. Uh, one final thing, the Chinese don't generally tend to talk about red lines uh, in any issue. It's simply not a concept that they tend to invoke because it implies that there can be legitimate actions that they might not have approval of. So it, it, I think it's a, a way for them to try to limit um, the uh, U.S. or other countries' freedom of action in responding to something like a Sony intrusion or any other cyber intrusion. Interesting. So maybe um, building off of this just with one other piece, uh, you know, they talk about it's either war or it's not war. Um, is there cyber war as distinct from all-out war with full military engagement, or is the idea for them that if an attack were to rise to a level that legitimized a response, that that, would, that response should involve all the means available, including full military engagement? We didn't get a clear idea from them, in fact, if um, any of those things were true. I mean, I think a large part of the problem, there the, are the two issues. One, at this point, they don't see a cyber attack as being the functional equivalent of a kinetic attack. 
although of course circumstances might have them change their mind. The other thing is that they don't have really a, thought, a well thought out and communicated set of responses. Uh, I just don't think they, they think in those terms. And in the combination of those two, I think, as a practical matter, it would take a fairly large attack to try to, which, to elicit a corresponding reaction from the Chinese. Yeah, the Chinese uh, don't appear from our reviewing of their writings as well as discussing with some of their leading thinkers on cyber, don't appear to have a fully fleshed out cyber deterrence doctrine, nor do they tend to have um, a clear notion of whether or not cyber war is real. Uh, clearly, they do talk about if actual kinetic conflict is ongoing, then uh, informationalized warfare would be a part of it and cyber would have a role to play. Uh, but that's a very different, as your question hinted at, that's a very different concept than whether or not they think, well, you could have a true war in cyberspace that would not necessarily be matched by a corresponding kinetic war in the physical world. One of the participants today, uh, and in previous talks we've had with U.S. officials, um, they, they both said that while the U.S. likes to think about grand strategy when it comes to deterrence or, or cyber, cyber espionage um, or any of this stuff, the Chinese like to think about issues on a case-by-case -case basis. I don't know if you found this in your negotiations with them, um, but could you speak a little bit about this, whether it's a, a generalization that you don't think applies? Um, or, you know, whether, whether it's true, uh, what do you think? Okay, I'll start speaking as a non-Chinese expert here. <laughs> My impression is that the Chinese think first in terms of relationships and then in terms of actions. The United States thinks first in terms of actions and then in terms of relationships. If you take a look at the, um, the Sony case, right? The U.S. wanted to have a response against North Korea so that other people didn't think that they had a free reign to carry out vandalism in the United States in, the, in cyberspace, okay? Whereas I suspect the Chinese looked at North Korea's actions within the entire context of the relationship with North Korea, most of whose, who, almost all of whose el other elements are non-cyber. And so that whereas the United States was saying, well, we have to punish this act, otherwise people will think it's free reign, the Chinese were thinking, okay, how does that affect our relationship? And now that, even now that we know that the North Koreans may be capable of this, how does, it, how does their capability and attitude in cyberspace map into all their other attitudes and capabilities that they have? So I don't think it's a matter of that the, the we're general and the Chinese are specific. In fact, when it comes to cyberspace, we tend to be more focused on the details and the Chinese tend to be more focused on the, relation, on, on the indicators of the relationship between the United States and China. And I would just add to what Martin said by saying that I think the Chinese tend to view an approach that's based on a case-by-case -case, um, method as representing a way to put constraints on a more powerful United States. Because, for example, if they said, well, here's the standard, and if anything crosses that threshold, then the United States is free to respond, or any country is free to respond, um, that doesn't in any way give them an opportunity to put to, to limit or to try and shape a specific incident, whereas a case-by-case -case approach allows China to at least hope to build uh, either to shape public international public opinion, to use its own leverage, uh, uh, then rather than, say, a, a general approach. Uh, the other thing to say is I think a general approach goes back to the, the question that Will posed immediately before that, and that is the answer is I don't think they have a general theory of when it's okay to respond yet 
in cyber, and I'm not sure that we've seen the evidence that they're getting close to that, and that may be because they're not trying to get close to it. It could also be because uh, it's a fast-moving issue and there's simply not that much expertise and international norms and laws are not yet at a place where all, three, all the major countries are in agreement. It's interesting that you brought up this question, Dan, because um, you could also look at some of the points that the Chinese made. You know, you guys spoke at the uh, at the event earlier about how they focus on very high-level concept, respect for Chinese uh, role in the world, sovereignty, development, giving them a voice at the table in establishing norms. So if they view establishing norms and hurdles and standards as something that enables the U.S., is that does that at all call into question the legitimacy of that goal for them of having more of a voice at the table, or do they think that they can shape those processes in a way that more benefits China? Well, again, I don't think the emphasis in their case is on the norms. The emphasis on their case is how China is recognized in a player as being able to shape the norms. I think it's more important for China to be understood that they have a, a, a seat at the table uh, and that that seat at the table isn't going away than exactly what is produced at that table, which is in many ways secondary. I would agree with that. Interesting. So then um, can you extend from that then that if you gave the Chinese the seat at the table, to what extent do they have an incentive to actually contribute to meaningful agreements at those tables? Or if the key thing is to have a voice, whereas they may not actually support the principle of using norms and standards, they may actually have an incentive to slow down those processes and avoid international consensus. Well, you know, it's the U.S. position, and we've been the United States has been telling this for China for a long time. If you want to be a great power, you have to act like a great power. You have to take responsibility for global outcomes. You can't simply throw your weight around without necessarily, you know, th there are rights and then there are responsibilities you have. And I, not, I don't get the impression that that message is resonating with China very fast. Yeah, I would just say I think, you know, the Chinese goal is first be at the table so as to show the world that China matters, so as to show the Chinese people that China is giving, being given mm -hmm. its appropriate level of respect. Um, it's not necessarily because they want to be there because there's a specific outcome that they're trying to drive everything towards. But I do think that when they're at the table for negotiating any issue, uh, they want to make sure that China's Communist Party's ruling status and interests are not challenged uh, and are, in fact, protected. And so they'll try to move the negotiations in that direction, which is, you know, at the end of the day, every country and every leading group is trying to move international norms in direction to serve them, and that's what their interest is. One of the causes of distrust between the U.S. and China that you talked about during your presentation um, in cyberspace is the disagreement over each power's capabilities of attribution um, of cyber attacks um, coming from one country to another. Um, and one of the recommendations of your study is potentially to create a neutral um, third-party attribution body, an attributive body. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and, you know, if if the U.S. and China were to uh, collectively stand up such a body, what challenges that might present to um, our own operational security as Americans or, um, or any other issues that might come out of that? Um, I, recommendations may be too strong a yeah. word. I, I think the important point is to find <clears throat> some way of China to accept a fact-based attribution of what they're doing 
insofar as they agree not to do certain things, and that we'll recognize when they're caught doing it, and we'll perceive that they're going to be recognized caught doing it so as to inhibit, inhibit them doing it. Right. Um, whether this comes across through sort of the respect, you know, the, like the scientific method. There is no neutral party in the scientific method, right? People, however, lay all their cards out on the table, and it's accepted and not accepted as to the, in terms of the facts they presented in the methodology. It would be nice to have that arrangement in cyberspace. I don't think it's, it's the most likely arrangement. A bilateral U.S.-China working group might be an arrangement, a third-party group, a group off, off, under the auspices of the United Nations or some other international group may be, may be a form. I personally am not hard over under about which particular mode is taking place. The important point is that there's be some way of saying, hey, look, you know, you did this. Conversely, they, they're given an opportunity to say, we did this, right? I would like to think that the United States, if it agreed not to attack China's critical infrastructure, would not, in fact, attack China's, China's critical infrastructure. And if that is true, then we don't really have to worry about being caught because we're not going to do that which is going to get caught, okay? But I would also, to reiterate something, um, there are three elements of attribution. There is the operational security by which uh, intrusion is carried out, there is the ability of the other side to detect it, and there's the ability of the other side having detected to attribute it. Um, in hoping or working for an improvement in the Chinese ability to attribute, that's not the same as basically saying, we'll also teach you how to detect our stuff, or also teach you how to be sneakier so we can't detect your stuff, right? Um, in that, I think they're on their own. But in attribution, once, you've, once you have evidence that something has taken place, uh, that's a different issue. And like I said, if we signed up to that, then um, there's no reason to fear because we're not going to be the guilty party. Right. Naive, perhaps, but... I mean, one thing that ties into that a little bit is, you know, the typical response from a lot of American officials is that the more information we give away about the way that we do things in cyberspace, right. the more it degrades our capability. So... When it comes to attribution, um, to what extent do you feel that there is an actual trade-off between, you know, maybe teaching them our methods of attribution would allow them to circumvent more of our methods of attribution, and while we're raising their confidence in mm. this agreement, we're reducing our own? Well, let me say two things about that. One is that there's an attribution has been very strongly privatized in recent years. And so we don't necessarily have to take them up to Fort Meade and say, here, this is how we do it. You could bring them, in fact, to a lot of U.S. corporations and have a discussion in that sense. The second thing is that our attribution capabilities aren't doing us very much good anymore. Okay? We can scream to the world, you Chinese have done this, that, and the other thing. And they say, eh, so, you know, you can't prove it, so and we'll continue to do it. If the Chinese really believe that our attribution was meaningful currently, their operational security would be much better than it is. The fact that their operational security is bad is a fairly strong indication that they don't really care about our, our attribution capability because in the end it doesn't really mean a whole lot. Mm -hmm. To what extent would you say that that's a question of audience? So given their focus on international legitimacy right. and public perception, as long as it's not couched in terms that most people can understand, Yeah. To what extent do they care if they know that we know that they did it versus who is the audience that would make them care? Well, 
I'm not most of the that's a really tough question because then you have to say compared to what right if your view is that everybody spies everything all the time and that the United States is better and so they're into everything I could say till I'm blue in the face look we really don't do certain espionage because we can't handle you know we don't know what to do with the results everybody's just going to roll their eyes at, at that sort of argument and I think that's what's happening internationally uh, some of our, some of the U.S. friends may, in fact, buy our line on that. But all that all that means is you're really dealing with a slightly larger version of the United States. To say that the Five Eyes trust us is to say, well, that the Five Eyes trust themselves. It is, isn't really getting getting you very far. The point is that attribution has to matter, and right now it doesn't matter. So. Uh, another related kind of question to this is um, you touched on two categories of exchanges, potential exchanges in the trade space on this issue. Mm -hmm. One is kind of one-off concessions from one side to the other. So an example would be the suggestion that we lift the bans on market access for Huawei and ZTE. Mm -hmm. Whereas another is mutually agreed principles, mm -hmm. like we agree not to attack each other's critical infrastructure. Right. And you might say that on an issue like uh, attacks on critical infrastructure, both sides have an incentive to agree to a mutual principle. Whereas from the Chinese perspective, asking for a removal of the bans on Huawei and DTE, if we were to generalize that to a principle, that would force them to open up their markets to a lot of American tech companies that are currently um, banned by various localization policies in China. So. Did you have a sense of where some of the issues that might be best approached from a mutual principles perspective versus a one-off concessions approach, uh, which issues were better for which? It's really a question about whether you want to negotiate synchronously or asynchronously. Okay, There's a book uh, written by Lyle Goldstein over the Naval War College called Meeting China Halfway, which advocates without really discussing in depth the values of an asynchronous approach. We do something, they do something, we do something, they do something, right? The problem is that approach falls apart if they don't reciprocate or if we don't necessarily approve of their reciprocation. If your view of the United States and China is that these are two countries who really ought to trust one another, but for some historical anomaly, don't. And so we just have to break the ice and all of a sudden, you know, it's kumbaya, then that sort of approach makes sense. And if you had a small concession, as it were, to, as it were you give a gift to the host, you know, when you show up at the door. Something doesn't cost you a great deal, but indicates your goodwill, there may be a case for that. But when it gets down to something serious, both people have to put something down at the table at the same time. And the only reason that we would want to open up market access to Huawei or ZTE is because they would reciprocate, or because we would find it in our own, own interest, irrespective of what China would do to, uh, to, to do something, to do something of, along those lines. Yeah, and the the request from the Chinese side that uh, you know you don't block Huawei and ZTE either in the U.S. or or badmouth them so that third countries think poorly of them uh, was not tied to any specific promise that you know and if you did that we would feel more comfortable with U.S. hardware and technology and software in our systems. In fact, the Chinese often brought that up. We're really dependent on you Americans for all the hardware. Most of what we run is run on American technology, uh, but there was never a sense that you know we would feel more comfortable if you would reciprocate that. Uh, and so that was actually an area where I think the Chinese side was generally looking for identifying Huawei and ZTE more as something that we're interested in generally. Maybe that could be something that would help get us 
something we want in some other area. I don't think, though, since those bans are largely congressionally pushed, uh, I don't really see that that's very much in the trade space. So you mentioned the, the gifts you could give at the door. You know, based on your conversations here and your experience working on this report, do you have any thoughts about what a uh, good gift to our hosts might be at the next Chinese meeting to get the conversation started? I tell you what they want. They want the indictments dropped. Um, uh, I'm not going to stand one foot for that, waiting for that to happen. The, the Chinese, uh, and we talked with the Chinese about the possibility that um, an interesting idea for the two sides might be choose one example of a previously publicly known incident on each side. You can imagine what those could be, you know, without identifying them publicly. And say, okay, this is a well-known incident that everybody believes was Chinese. This is a U.S. incident that you Chinese know of and believe was us. And you know what? In order to show good faith once to clear the deck, maybe we both agree to this. Now, this is an idea that has potential downsides, too. Of course, it could, if it was too recent, it could actually lead to some possible consequences. Companies that might have been intruded upon could then make claims. You'd have to find a way to do that. Uh, but that's one possible face-saving issue, because these would not be revealing things that were previously unknown. So this would not be alerting them that, hey, we're actually inside that system, or hey, you know, we're inside your system, the U.S., uh, but something that's widely known and that far enough back in the past it might be a way to air dirty laundry, or dirty laundry that's already been aired, and to say, okay, you know, hand up, just to prove that I'm of good faith, we're here to say today, you know what, yes, that is an instance, and there is some cost to doing that, since a lot of these things that have been denied or at least not commented upon officially. Um, but that's one idea. It's an idea that would probably merit much, much further discussion before it could be finalized. Did you get any traction uh, suggesting that with the Chinese? The, the Chinese side, you know, sometimes found that interesting. Um, you know, we were ha discussing that as one of many, many different ways to, uh, to possibly move forward. Um, none of these are easy. There are very few free gimmies. Um, you know, the, the free, the easiest or cheapest is, you know, you say, okay, we're moving ahead with the cyber dialogue. We're, we're going to discuss cyber between the two presidents, and we're going to make a joint statement about uh, our desire to improve our relationship in this space. That's that's not very concrete. Uh, it could be more fleshed out in terms of standing up a, a bilateral discussion group, but then you get to the problem of what Martin indicated. You know, there are those on the Chinese side, many on the Chinese side, who would say, but we can't do that until the, the indictments are quashed. And I think the U.S. answer is, don't set yourself up for something that's never going to happen. So. Great. Well, thank you both for joining us. This has been uh, Martin Lubicki and Scott Harold uh, talking to us about their trip to China. And uh, this is the CSIS Strategic Technologies Podcast signing off.